texted me last Sunday after the Dolphins lost and said, okay, so now the Dolphins are out of the playoffs. Are you going to root for the Chiefs for the rest of the time? And I said, sure, Bill. I said, if you were here, I'd even wear a tie for the Chiefs in honor of you. In the mail this week. <laughs> this is what I get, so. So. <laughs> so we'll do that. <clears throat> Last week, we uh, started uh, the new series called Joshua Building a Battle-Tested Faith. So let's grab your Bibles, open up to chapter 2 as we continue in that this week. Joshua chapter 2. Father God, we are thankful for the opportunity to laugh together. We're thankful for the fellowship, the relationships that you've given us. God, we're so grateful for the opportunity to worship through singing, through prayer, uh, and uh, through giving. And now as we worship you by looking in your word, we pray your Holy Spirit would be free to work in our hearts and minds today. Encourage us, challenge us, strengthen us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in chapter 1 last week, we, we saw how Joshua had received a commission from God to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. In uh, verse 2, we read where God uh, commanded jo uh, Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving them, to the sons of Israel. So along with that commission as leadership, God spiritually prepared Joshua in, in three specific ways that we, we looked at in detail last week. He first reminded him of all of God's promises, which were still valid and operative, even though Moses ha had died, right? And then second, God assured him of his constant presence with him, wherever he would go, whatever he would be doing. And then third, God told him, to always keep his word in mind with the express purpose, of course, of obeying it. And through those three means, then he would find success. And of course, those same things hold true for us today as well. So Joshua immediately responded positively to God. In that, verses 10 and 11 says, Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves. For within three days you are going to cross this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. And the people then responded positively to Joshua and God's commands through Joshua. In verse 16 we see, They answered Joshua, saying, Saying, all that you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. So everybody was following. Everybody was on board uh, with what God had said there in chapter 1. And that's the context then as we begin chapter 2. So maybe the question might come up in your mind, well, why th wait three days to, to start this campaign to go in and possess the promised land? I mean, God told them, right, rise up, go in, go in and take it. So why the delay in getting started? Well, Joshua does what any good military uh, leader or commander would do before an engagement uh, with the enemy, and he decides to gather some intel. Verse 1 of chapter 2 explains, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. Now, the Israelites were camped uh, on the east side of the Jordan River, um, uh, several miles uh, over and, and, and north of uh, Jericho. And um, 
the, the place where they were camped, literally the Hebrew name means uh, meadow of acacia trees. And uh, that's where they were. Uh, they'd been camped there for quite some time. And so obviously their presence was no longer a secret to those who were living in the promised land, those on the western side of the Jordan River. And Joshua, he no doubt hand-selected two men to do a little espionage work for him. Now, I, I say hand-selected. I'm guessing uh, the Bible doesn't say he did that, but I, I'm guessing that's what happened based on his prior spying experience. Remember that? Uh, Forty years earlier, 40 years before this time, Moses had led the, the people of Israel to the border of the Promised Land, and they sent 12 spies into the land, one from each tribe. And those 12 spies went in and searched out the land, and they came back with a report and and Joshua and Caleb were the only two of those 12 spies who came back with a positive report saying, hey, this is great, this is great land, we can have it. The, uh, the other uh, 10 guys were, um, you know, these whimpering, wallowing in negativity, uh, oh, we can't take the land, the residents there are like giants, they're going to squash us like a bug, we're all doomed, there's no way this can work for us. And the mass of people listened to those 10 rather than Joshua and Caleb. And that directly led then to this 40 years of wandering in the wilderness Why that entire generation died off with the exception of Joshua and Caleb whom God preserved for this time. So that's why I'm saying I am guessing that Joshua carefully picked a couple of guys with both stout hearts and uh, a strong faith. And those are characteristics I think we'll see as we look at their story. As a commander, Joshua wanted some basic information about this area that would be the first stage of, of their incursion into the promised land, and especially wanted information about the fortified and powerful city of Jericho. Now, this is not something that these two spies could do simply by sneaking up on some hillside nearby and scoping the place out with high-powered binoculars. That wasn't going to work for them. They would have to actually enter the city. And they could only do that during the daytime because this was a walled and protected city and the single gate to the city was always closed and barred at night. So can you imagine? Uh, I mean, this is why I say they had to be guys of stout, stout, stout heart, right? I mean, here you are, a couple of Israeli spies having to try to blend in with the local people as you walk through the main gate into this city in broad daylight, hoping not to be caught as spies. I mean, that would take nerves of steel and lots of guts, wouldn't it? And that's what these guys did. So what did they do? Well, you look at the rest of verse 1. So they went and came into the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. Now, maybe you're thinking, wait a minute here. Why would men of God head straight to a prostitute's house? Well, I think there's two answers for that. First, on a human level, it's a, a brilliant strategic move to conceal yourself. I mean, if strange men 
were going to come into the city. And of course, strange men did come into the city from time to time, merchants and, and visitors and travelers and stuff like that. Uh, a very normal and likely place for them to visit would be a house of ill repute. That would seem natural to the people. It wouldn't draw attention to these guys. And where else could they go where they would be less likely to be asked embarrassing questions about what they were doing in town and why they were there. You know, prostitutes don't ask a lot of uh, probing questions because that's not good for business. Plus, if there was one place that would know the gossip of the town, that would be it. And a prostitute would be much more likely to share information like that because, you know, they're not exactly looked upon with favor or held in high social standing in the community. And so from a human perspective, this was a great move. Also, keep in mind, these guys did not go to a prostitute's house in order to partake of her services. They were simply looking for a place to conceal themselves and gather information. That's what they were doing. But there is a second reason why the spies ended up there. From a human perspective, it was a, a good strategic move to hide themselves. From God's perspective, they went there because they had a divine appointment to keep. See, it's not like that these spies knew that God was working in the heart of one of the inhabitants of that city. And it's not like they were expecting to receive any help in their endeavor to gather information about this place. But both of those things happened in a prostitute's house. You see, this would be a case uh, of the truth of Proverbs 16.9 working out in real life where it says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. These men had a divine appointment to keep. Now, spiritually speaking, Rahab was not a woman that had much going for her. Think about that. She didn't have a whole lot going for her. First of all, she was a Gentile, right? And now we know that God's plan and desire was for the Jewish people to reach out to the whole world. And, you know, it wasn't supposed to be just locked into the Jews only, but that wasn't happening, right? And for one reason, of course, they had just recently finished having 400 years of captivity in Egypt, so there wasn't a lot of missionary work going on during that time, but, but the Jews had the promises and the laws from God, and they weren't spreading the word much. So as a Gentile, Rahab truly fit the description that the Apostle Paul gave in Ephesians when he said that Gentiles were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promises, having no hope without God in this world. And worse, she wasn't just any Gentile, she was an Amorite. Now, there were several different people groups that were living in the promised land, and all of these people groups had been condemned by God and set apart for judgment. Just as God sent His judgment against a sinful world in Noah's time, now these groups of people were ripe for judgment. Only this time... God wasn't going to use a flood for his judgment. He was going to use Israel to mete out this judgment. And out of all of those people groups, the Amorites had been singled out by God as being particularly vile and corrupt. Their fertility rites were a horrendous mockery 
of God's plan for sexuality within marriage. But even more despicable than that was their practice of child sacrifice. I mean, can you imagine a country actually legalizing and sanctioning the killing of babies? Oh, maybe we can. And it was for what God then described as that other corruption that the Amorites were to suffer his judgment. And Rahab was part of that people, destined for destruction. And then you add on to top of all those factors the truth that she was a prostitute. There have been some uh, who have tried to soften that, to try to argue against it by claiming you know, that she was an innkeeper or some other such thing as that. But the Hebrew word is very clear. It has only one meaning. It's not one of those words that could mean this or that or other things based on the context. There was only one meaning for it. It meant prostitute, harlot, or whore. There's, there's just no nice way to say it. She made her living by selling her body to whatever man would pay the fee. Spiritually speaking, this woman did not have a whole lot going for her. Except, as you read the story, you see that she did have at least one thing going for her. She had heard about the God of Israel. And it was because she had heard of the God of Israel that she did what she did. And here's what happened as you read and follow the story, right? Somebody in town did spot the two spies as they came into town and they correctly identified them as belonging to Israel and they correctly surmised that the reason for their presence in Jericho was to scope out the land. And they must have watched them then enter into Rahab's home and they decided, well, we're going to earn some brownie points with the king and go pass this information on to him. And as soon as the king found out about it, of course, he sent messengers, which it doesn't identify, but very likely soldiers, right, or his guard um, to, to Rahab, demanding that they turn these men over to him. Now, Rahab must have suspected like, uh, something like this would happen because verse 4 tells, her, tells us, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And then when the king's men showed up, she lied to them, outright, bald-faced, lied to them, claiming that she had no idea who the guys were, uh, which obviously would be a believable statement, you know, coming from a prostitute, and that they had already left, which also would have been a believable statement. Look at the rest of verses 4 and 5. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. And then, you know, she gave the idea that these guys must have just barely missed them and, and uh, that they were just there because she went on to say, pursue them quickly for you will overtake them. And so that's what these guards did. They, the king's men took off. They went uh, towards the Jordan River because obviously they knew they were camped over there on the other side and they went out looking for them. Obviously, they didn't find them because Rahab had the men hiding up on the roof of her house. Now, my question is, why did Rahab risk her life defying the king's 
orders. I mean, these were her people. This was her home. This is where she had lived all her life. This was all that she knew. Why would she risk her life for some unknown men? The answer is, as I said earlier, she had heard about God, the God of Israel. And look at how she describes that, starting in verse 9. I know, this isn't, I'm thinking, hoping, wondering, I know that the Lord, and she gave the right name for God, Yahweh, that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Hog, whom you utterly destroyed when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She had heard about God and His mighty deeds. But of course, by her own words, so had everybody else. But everybody else, it simply caused them to be afraid. What was different with her? Well, she not only heard with her ears, but she heard with her heart. In other words, she chose to believe in this God of Israel. She didn't have a Bible. There was no preacher to explain things to her. She had very limited information, but based on what she had heard, she believed. Exactly when was it that she chose to believe? Well, we don't know. I mean, notice at the end of verse 12, she said, For the Lord your God. Your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So she correctly identified God. When you say He's God on heaven above and earth beneath, that was saying He's God over all gods. This has to be the true, real God, right? She, uh, but then she called Him your God, referring to those two men. And, and perhaps the spies took some time to explain to her more about who God was. We don't know, but at some point, He went from being your God to her God. And we don't know exactly when that occurred. What we do know is that the New Testament commends her for her faith. Hebrews 11 is a chapter dedicated to highlighting the men and women renowned for their faith. And verse 31 says, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies in peace. In believing, she threw herself on the mercy of God and God's people. After making that declaration of, of faith in who God was, she asked the spies to spare her and, and her family when they came in to take over the land. And they, they said that they would do that, but they gave three conditions on it. One, she had to keep secret the reason for them being there. Two, uh, she and all her family members would have to stay in her house when the attack came. And uh, third, she would have to tie a scarlet uh, cord in her window to make it visible and identifiable which house was hers. And she agreed to do that. Rahab's house, as many houses were, were was built right into the wall of the city. The back, the back wall of the house would have been the wall of the city. And she had a, a window uh, looking out then over that wall. 
And, and uh, she promised to do everything the spies said, and then she let them down through the window and told them not to go right back to camp or they would end up getting caught by the king's men, but to go out in the hills instead and hide out there. Now, uh, I don't know what you picture when you picture going out into the hill country, but that's a picture looking west of Jericho when, when we were there a year and a half ago. Nice, nice place to hide out for three days, wouldn't it be? Um, that's where she sent them. And, and, and they, they stayed there, as she had said, for three days. And then they were able to sneak back to camp and return and give their report to Joshua. And when they did that, this is what they said. They said to Joshua, surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. Where did they hear that phrase? From Rahab. I want to end with just a couple quick application thoughts from this story. And the first one, of course, is this. God is still in the business of saving people, even people with nothing spiritually going for them. We all stand under the judgment of God. We all have a sinful backstory. And some, yeah, may be more sinful than others, to be sure, but as Rahab found out, the depth of your sin doesn't matter to God. She experienced the truth of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5 when he said, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. She may have been known as a shady lady around Jericho, but all of that changed when she met grace. And I know probably most of you here this morning have experienced that grace for yourself. But if there is anyone here who has not, my question would be, what are you waiting for? Don't try to clean up your life first to be good enough for God because that will never happen. Instead, let grace wash your life pure and then allow God to do the work of cleaning up. And maybe, maybe it's not you that you're worried about. Yes, you've already experienced that grace, but you have someone, family member, a friend, a loved one that you've been praying for and they are caught in the depths of sin. Well, do not despair. As long as God has enough grace for the shady lady of Jericho, He has enough grace for whoever you're praying for. Our God's grace is greater than all our sin. And God is still in the business of saving people. Second, I think it's interesting to note that Rahab did not become a second-class citizen of Israel once she was in it. She was, her past was not held against her. She was welcomed into the family of God with open arms. She married a Jewish man from the tribe of Judah named Salmon. They had a son named Boaz who was a very godly man, which would speak to the way that he was raised. Boaz had a son named Obed who had a son named Jesse who had a son named David who became king 
of all Israel. She's great-great-grandmother of King David, and in David's line, meaning she's in the line of Jesus. Or she was fully accepted into the commonwealth of Israel. So here's a challenge for us. Do we accept Rahab with open arms? When she comes walking through the doors of the church and we know that she or he has a history, do we hold that against him? Are we willing to show the grace that God shows? Or do we make second-class citizens of the people in church? Third, Rahab showed great courage and took incredible risks to stand for God and for His plans and for His people. For that matter, of course, so did the spies. So my question is, what risks are you willing to take for God? Here's something I can guarantee you. God didn't save you just to give you a comfortable, safe, middle-class American life. He's called you for far more than that. I mean, you have to know that Rahab's heart was thumping when those king's men came to confront her. And I I know we could debate endlessly about whether or not she should have lied in order to save the lives of the spies. What's not up for debate is the fact that God commends her faith in being willing to, to risk her life to take her stand for God. So when's the last time you did anything where your heart was thumping Father God, there's so much we can learn from Rahab the harlot. Because she is now Rahab, the lady covered in grace and in the faith hall of faith. God, we all have a backstory. As the Apostle Paul said, after listing so many sins, and such were some of you, but you were washed. God, we're so thankful for your grace. We didn't earn it, we don't deserve it, but you give it freely to all who will receive. And God, if there's anyone here this morning who has not received your grace, I pray that now, quietly, silently in their heart, they would reach out to you. But God, even though that transaction of faith and salvation takes place quietly in our hearts, you have called us to live boldly for you. And God, we pray that you would give us the courage of Rahab, the courage of these spies. That we wouldn't shy away from things because of risk but we would seek to stand for you in whatever ways you lead and direct us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.